This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Hi, I'm Nate. Welcome to Almost Heretical. I say this a lot, but I truly am so glad that you're on this journey with me. And I'm specifically glad that you're here for this episode because today I got to have a wonderful chat with two of my friends and fellow Portlanders, Danielle and Crispin Mayfield. Danielle has two books, Assimilate or Go Home, Notes from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith, and also a new one, The Myth of the American Dream, Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety, and Power. You've likely read her work in Christianity Today, Sojourners, Washington Post, and a bunch of other places. Um, And then Crispin is a therapist here in Portland, and he's super passionate about what attachment science has to teach us about our relationships with ourselves, our families, partners, neighbors, and God. He hosts a podcast called Attached to the Invisible with Amy Simmons. You should definitely check that out. And together, Danielle and Crispin host the Prophetic Imagination Station. It's a podcast that dives into a different bit of Christian media subculture each season. Um, So far, they've re-examined Adventures in Odyssey and McGee and Me, Frank Peretti book series, and even the Christian hardcore music scene. So lots of helpful stuff there in unpacking some of the messages that we picked up with some of that media. I really love this conversation, and I found it personally just really beneficial and fun, and I'm excited to share it with you now. So here's my talk with Danielle and Crispin Mayfield. So excited to be talking to both of you, um, and rarely do I get to like talk with friends on on the show outside of Tim, of course. But so it's 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 fun to have you on, and you know we've had conversations in the past, and um, it's kind of fun to do that in a more public way now, I guess. Yeah, this is awesome, and and both Crispin and I listen to your podcast, so it's also really fun for us because mm-hmm. I'm like. I feel like we've been in conversation with you on all these things, <laughs> but you're, yeah, yeah. but that's kind of one-sided, I guess. So. Uh. Oh no! Yeah, yeah. It's it's like I see, I follow you both on Twitter, obviously, and I think I, that's how I interact mostly with you. Um, is is that way, you know, especially this last year with mm-hmm. not getting to talk to you, um, in person and things. So this is fun. It's fun to get to jump on and and chat a little bit about what's been going on this last year and or more even um, as we see just some pretty crazy things which we're, we'll, we'll get into here but um and i want to have both of you on because crispin you always refer to yourself as danielle's husband you know uh-huh. at church and things like that and it's like let's get you on the show let's get you on the show too but uh danielle you had a tweet um and i feel like this kind of sets up a little bit about how i'm how i'm thinking about like this chat a little bit but you said um crispin you were i think talking about your book you just turned in the manuscript to zondervan and um and danielle you had said that you focus a lot on the outward manifestations of how white evangelicals have a disordered relationship with god and therefore their neighbors Mm -hmm. and then crispin has done the deeper work of asking why like why why is that how did we get there and into some attachment theory and that that type of stuff which we're going to get into but that's sort of how that's why i wanted to have you both on is because i think both of those sides of the coin are are so or as we talk about on this show ends of the stream um there's like the top of the stream where you have the input and then you have the bottom of the stream and these outputs that we're seeing now and uh so i want to have you both on to kind of talk about this and i guess to kick it off i'll, I'll throw it out to both of you but we had a uh, call with our patrons 
oh, last week, I think, and we were just reflecting on 2020 in light of all the stuff that's happened. And, and one of the questions that we threw out was, what in this last year, or I guess we could say into 2021 as well, because that first week there was kind of a doozy, what has surprised you about what the evangelical church has done and some of the things we've seen? And then what hasn't surprised you? What was like, okay, yeah, of course. And then what, and then what would you see? Like, wow, I really didn't see that one coming or was it, or were there no surprises? Was this exactly like according to the playbook? Yeah. It's so funny. Cause I wrote a book that was released last year, like two months after the pandemic started called the myth of the American dream reflections on affluence, autonomy, safety, and power. So it was me basically looking at white evangelicalism and these four values that have totally been warped into this super, um, sort of like Christian supremacy, nationalist thing. And, uh, you know, so a part of me feels pretty proud, like, okay, I saw all those things coming, (laughs) but like, like, I did not see the mask thing coming, you know, like how Christians would be at the forefront of not wearing masks in a global health pandemic. Like that one knocked me on my butt. And I would say um, in 2021, and this could be similar for other listeners too, I'm not sure. I I think there's this tendency as we continue to grapple with, you know, I was raised in evangelicalism. That's my bread and butter. As we deconstruct it, you know, um, we try and look for community and safety in other places. And I think I'm just at this point where I'm like, progressive Christianity doesn't, if it's still steeped in whiteness, uh, it just still doesn't have anything I want (laughs) at this point. And it's all corrupt. It's all corrupt um, is how I feel. Maybe that's terrible to say (laughs) out loud, but that's where I'm at. Yeah. I think that there's that, like a lot of people said, like they were shocked, but not surprised. Um, about a lot of things this year. And, and so I actually, um, I subscribed to folks on the family's mailing list. Uh, cause I always want to know what you're brave, right. I want to know what's going on Keep over there. Keep your enemies close, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I read an email, um, the day before inauguration, maybe the day of inauguration calling for a day of prayer. And they were talking about how it's been such a hard year because, Families uh, have been put under strain. Businesses have been put under strain. Marriages have been put under strain. Um, And that's why it's been a hard year, which means that they did not mention the hundreds of thousands of deaths that have occurred in the last year because of COVID. And that was, on the one hand, shocking to me, but not shocking. But noticing, talking about death, talking about grief, talking about lament, those are emotions that the evangelical church uh, doesn't know how to deal with. The only thing we know how to do is talk about how things are going to get better or how things are tough, but to actually sit with the grief of hundreds of thousands of deaths, that is difficult. Mm. And just in this like newsletter from Jim Daly from Focus on the Family, it was just so apparent to me. Yeah, I, I'm with you on the, the the mask thing. I didn't really see... Coming, and I don't think it would have happened if Trump hadn't come out against mm. masks. If he was sort of on the fence about it or was, you know, pro mask, I don't think the church maybe would have had that response. But and then the other one for me was, you know, we've been we've been talking about for I mean I remember like '90s Christian music uh, talking about the church is uh, not a building; it's a it's a it's it's a community. It's people. We don't need this building, you know. Like that was like that was like the messaging that I grew up with was 
I have like songs running through my head right now, but, um, <laughs> but it, you know, it's about the people. It's not about the building. There's this one, uh, acapella group. You can't go to church cause the church is you. And like, that was in great. That, I remember singing that in the song. You know it? No, you know it? no. We're just oh, okay. laughing at you. You're a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I remember like, I just remember singing it in the car and, and, um, but then, so I did, I guess I did not see that one coming either. That, that this group that's been so much about, we don't need these four walls to exist and to, um, that's not what our identity is. And we're about, we're about people and, you know, take the building away, whatever we can go underground, we can do whatever. And then that building became so essential. It seemed like, and, and you're going like, well, maybe this is all just sort of a, a statement here. Maybe it's not mm-hmm. really about, Oh my gosh. Did I think that I would be protesting a worship event in downtown Portland and being screamed at by proud boys um, who, who were there ostensibly to worship God without masks on. No, I did not see that coming, Nate. That was, that was a, that was a real, and I had posted on Instagram, like, I'm going to go protest this thing. Who wants to come with me? And I remember my mom texting me being like, I'm so excited you're going. I'm going to go too with my friends and worship. And I was like, oh, mom, you got to read what I said a little bit more oh, closely. No. Mom, I'm going to protest it. Okay. <laughs> like this is, this was 2020 for us. Okay. Well, I saw, I saw some pictures. What was that experience like? <laughs> I mean, you just said getting screamed at by. Yeah. Proud Bo- yeah. Crispin was there. I think we went just to be like, we'd, we'd been involved in the Black Lives Matter protests and we're, so we're super pissed that Sean Foyt was there to, um, what was his tagline? Riots to revival. Mm-hmm. And so we felt like it was an erasure of the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that had been going down in Portland. So we just wanted to go as Christians and hold up our little Bible verses and just confuse the hell out of the live streams uh, because these people loved to live stream. And uh, instead, it was like two hours of people arguing, screaming, um, spiritually abusing us, you know, trying to forcibly pray for us. And, um, you know, it's, I think for me, it was like a real watershed moment of having to look at that crowd of people packed together, most of them white, singing these triumphalistic songs um, about how it's your breath in my lungs. Like, and if I sing that loud enough, I'm not going to get COVID. Mm-hmm. And this is how I worship God. And I'm like, you, I, I, the God you worship seems like a monster, and I just can't do this anymore. So it was a, like a pretty intense uh, moment for me. You wow. know, I almost felt like I was in an indie movie. It was so intense. I'm like, am I? Wow. My Zach Braff? Like, what is happening? I have so <laughs> many emotions, and it's just it's too on the nose. Yeah. Awful in a way, you know. Wow. Yeah, it was really, it was really emotionally uh, just so loaded. We'd been going downtown uh, to the Black Lives Matter protests downtown and uh so this was like two blocks away um and i don't know if you've ever had that experience of like being in a church and you just want to like stand up and like hold a sign that's like hey like there are real things going on in the world like right outside these doors like that you're not paying attention to that was like literally what we got to do like we were like holding signs oh yeah so tell him what your sign said my sign said repent with me of white supremacy and guess what Proud Boys did not want to do that with Crispin. Nobody. And, they, um, yeah, there, there was yeah. lots of statements of like, well, we've all sinned. And if you have, have sinned white supremacy, you can you can uh, repent of that and I'll pray for you. And but Crispin's just there wow. smiling, being like, I repent of it all the time. Come join me. And um, 
people didn't wow. do it. There were yeah, a couple yeah. of men that were like, "Oh yeah, we'll we'll pray with you." And I was like, "Great, like let's let's repent of white supremacy." And they just launched into it and they're like, "Lord, we pray for this young man and blah blah." And I was like, "No, no, 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 stop." And they just kept on like praying these like intense. And I was like, "Guys, if you don't stop, this is spiritual abuse cuz you're praying over me." And I do not want you to. I want you to pray with me. This is spiritual abuse. And they were like, what, what, what? Okay, okay, well, let's keep talking. It, it was it was just, what? I mean, just think of the most, like, intense, like, evangelical. And they all looked like our dads mm. yes. is the other thing, right? And so it was just a wild yes. experience. I lost it at one point, and Danielle had to, like, pull, pull me back a little bit. Yeah, Chris was our laughing hysterically because these guys pulled out their cell phones to show him pictures of their mission trips to Tanzania. And there's black people in the pictures, therefore they couldn't be racist. And Crispin was laughing hysterically, and I had to swoop in and get I, him out of there. Yeah, I like, literally was like, like a Danielle, ops. like these these guys aren't racist because there's a picture of him, like whole like shaking hands with a pastor in Africa. Anyways, we are getting off topic <laughs> yeah. here, but it is an interesting picture into where we are. We are like fighting with Christians is what my life has become. And I'm just tired, Nate. I'm tired. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we talk about restarting the show and things that, and you know, I wanted, I wanted to get into stuff from 2020 and that's sort of what I anticipated some of the stuff that we're going to be doing in these episodes. It just feels like, you know, every episode, it's like, that's, that's what you got to talk about. You know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's the, that is the topic right now. And that's what our listeners, I mean, rightfully so that's what they need help processing through. That's what, I mean, a lot of us need help trying to make sense of, you know, how do we get here? And I think the natural question, and, you know, you write the book, Myth of the American Dream, Danielle, and uh, I'm, I was actually scratching my head right now because, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, how did a guy who was all about bringing good news to the poor, blind, and oppressed become co-opted for doing so much of the opposite of that? You know, and then I'm looking at, um, you're, you're talking about talking to the Proud Boys or whatever, and you know, you're know you using the same religious text. You're talking supposedly about the same Jesus, but why does it feel so different? I mean, that was actually one of the most poignant things about being down there was this man was like, why are you protesting people worshiping God? And that like... It, my heart sort of sank because at that point I realized like that is literally where we are at mm -hmm. is that the worship of God is something worth like in America mm -hmm. uh, by white evangelicals is something worth being protested. It is so twisted that that so I find damaging. My, so damaging mm -hmm. that I find myself actually like protesting the worship of god we risked covid to go protest it honestly because none of those people were wearing masks some of them were spitting on us protesters like it was it was wild yeah wow. and that's a that is a great question like how how did we get here and and i think that like so many people have done such a better job of answering this question and you know i think this conversation about christian nationalism is one that's really important to have and white supremacy all of that stuff i feel like for me there's still this desire to say like what is the unspoken thing happening here yeah. and for me it really does come back to this 
thing about triumphalism, right? God's on our side. God will protect us. Like I, I just felt a lot of pathos, like at this worship event, like if I praise God loud enough, maybe things will be okay. Hmm. And that's just really devastating to me because the second something bad happens to you, you're blamed by that Christian community, right? It must be your fault that you ended up getting COVID at this super spreader event, right? It's, Hmm. it's not God's fault. It's your fault. And I think for me, I'm still really unpacking this idea of um, Christian supremacy, right? This idea that Christians above all others are gifted like special revelation from God, special privilege. Uh, We should be in power because we'll do the best with it. And I, I still think that's a topic like nobody wants to talk about, especially Christians, because that is just our worldview. Evangelicals have the absolute pinnacle of divine revelation, and it's our duty to go tell everybody about it. Like, and if you believe that, it's just like there's nothing else to say. And I believed that for the vast majority of my life. What were the, you know, it's in it's in your books and things, but what were the first for both of you? What were the first kind of like the cracks, I guess, that you you saw in in the system? When did that first happen for you? And what were those things that you started to go like, wait a minute? Yeah, I mean, I've I've done a lot of writing about this, but for me, it really was uh, when I was in Bible college, I started volunteering with refugees here in Portland and their life was just super duper hard. And so I had to ask myself like, oh my gosh, is Portland even like a great place <laughs> for people who are poor or don't speak English or are Muslim or are black, you know? And the answer is no, it's not at all. Um, and then because they didn't like immediately convert to Christianity. I mean, they never converted to Christianity. I then had to ask myself like, okay, so is my religion even like any good news for anyone who's not just like me? And I think this is a really common narrative we hear, right? It's this, the idea of hell and how like God is going to send the vast majority of people to hell if they don't become evangelicals and pray the sinner's prayer. That's a really normal gateway entry point for people to be like, wait a minute, do I really have all the right answers? Um, So I would say that, but for me, it was really also tied into this idea of America and how I I viewed myself as an American Christian as having the pinnacle. And I'm like, gosh, the second you start hanging out with people who have experienced poverty in America, they will tell you, America sucks. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, it just does. And so even writing my book, The Myth of the American Dream, I felt so stupid. Like, for half of our country, they're like, yes, duh. (laughs) Like, (laughs) the American dream is a myth. And then the other half were like, what are you talking about? America's the greatest country on earth. You just, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And I think at this point, I'm just super depressed at that uh, huge ideological divide. Um that we have. And what's fascinating is we see middle class and even lower class white people still clinging to that myth, even though it doesn't um, service them. And that's really been revealed mm-hmm. during COVID, I think, in particular. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, totally. There's a there's a, a, a name I guess I want to talk a little bit about because I know, Danielle, at least you have tweeted about this person. Um, you know, you, you talk a lot about income inequality and Jesus' association with the poor. Um Dave Ramsey, how how does how does someone who is really, you know, kind of a, it feels a bit counter to the the way of Jesus even 
Um, how does that person be? I, this is the question I have, like all the time. Like, how does how did that person become the the Christian role model for you know finances and um, and then obviously now there's a bunch of stuff coming out about the culture there at at uh, Ramsey's company and yeah, I think I have one of the answers to that. Um, a a few years ago, I taught uh, the the um, cultural competency class um, at my the Bible college where I got my master's uh, in counseling. So it was, you know, how do you um, hold diversity in mind and be a competent therapist? Um, and one of the, it was going through these different um, cultural ideals um, and, and cultural values. And uh, in white Western cultural values, um, I was reading through it and I had just recently read a blog by Dave Ramsey and in like three paragraphs, he hit on like every single like white Western thing, like uh, subduing the earth. Uh, if like you get what you earn, um, mm. the idea that uh, of science of like, it, you know, he'll say things like it's basic math. Like if you do this, then this happens. Um, and so that was really striking to me that just in a few, you know, probably like 500 words, Dave Ramsey like hit every single one of those cultural mm-hmm. values. And so basically what that tells me is like Dave Ramsey embodies, you know, white Western cultural values. And because we see ourselves in that, you know, it's pretty easy, although, yeah, it's pretty easy to say, well, yeah, that must be right. Yeah. And therefore that must be Jesus. Yeah. And we've even seen some of his like outward stuff change over like, starting off with like how do you save you know you put the cash in the envelopes and don't take out credit cards and now like they have tons and tons of seminars on like how to be a millionaire and how to retire as a millionaire as soon as possible and so to me it is a progression of like just baptizing wealth hoarding you know with a slightly glossy christian sheen because you have one verse from proverbs in there and in reality like dave ramsey is in a symbiotic relationship with churches and institutions where he tells his the people that come to his classes like uh, the only way to be generous right now is to tie 10 percent to your local church beyond that you need to live off of rice and beans and save all your money until you actually have tons of money and then then magically you'll you'll be able to be generous at some point so for me i'm like yeah he tells people to tithe to their churches and then churches promote his material it's just, it's just like a messed up System. I mean, I've never thought about the fact that Dave Ramsey has gotten rich by selling people materials talking about how to get rich. You're you're just now figuring. Isn't that, that out? a pyramid scheme? Isn't that the definition of? Oh, Christmas! It works though. It works. You just put <laughs> yeah. that cash in those envelopes. Here, listeners, listen to me right now. Just put a little budgeting app on your phone, and then read the gospels there we go that's my financial literacy curriculum for you from a christian perspective budget if you need to budget and then give all your money to the poor that is my advice to you i'm gonna be a millionaire dave ramsey i think is the only person that i've ever seen i saw an interview where they were like jesus said this and he rebutted jesus with proverbs (laughs) dave ramsey hates jesus i will say it right now he hates they were like jesus says this jesus of nazareth he's like but proverbs says this proverbs can go proverbs can go you know what 
<laughs> Proverbs is oh the royal consciousness. Okay, thank you, Walter Brueggemann, for bringing that out. I always mm. want to. If I could just sit Dave Ramsey down, I would want to talk to him about the royal consciousness. I'm sorry, Nate. We are just like taking your no, pod- it, podcast and all sorts. This, this is what I wanted. This is this is wonderful. <laughs> okay, can I can I go back a little bit? Yeah, because I'm I'm really curious to answer like how the cracks in white Christianity, because we actually, Crispin and I met at a Bible college where all of our syllabi were white men from Dallas Reformed Seminary. So we grew, you know, we, right. we kind of had like that same background. And I'm, I've always been a little bit more intense than you in some ways, mm-hmm. but you like hide your intensity. So I'm just excited for you to just let that flow yeah. here. I, yeah, I wasn't going to let that question pass by because I was thinking about it today. And because uh, I actually had a friend from my hometown that I knew when I was like a little kid ask me, like, how did you go from there to where you are now? Uh, and she said, like, you went to Multnomah. Isn't that like a really conservative uh, school? And and there have been things along the way that have been really important. But I actually was thinking about when I was 17 I watched the movie The Butterfly Effect uh, <laughs> with Ashton Kutcher. And you said that's so weird. I know. I'm like, do I say Am I saying his name right? Kutcher. Ashton I, Kutcher. I, I, Ashton Kutcher. Kutcher. Uh, I'm sorry. I was a missionary <laughs> kid. I was not around during Don't this say era. Cooch. Anyways. And so. <laughs> so. But anyway. Um, there is a lot of trauma in that movie. And I remember as a 17 year old, like thinking about all the trauma in that movie and thinking like the church has never talked about any of this feels like the church has no way to address this. And if the church is, you know, in some way, the way to heaven, like so many people that have gone through trauma are just totally screwed. Yeah. So I just had that sense, like, and I don't think I'd even been able to put it into words until years later, but I do remember watching that movie and having that thought, you know, at that age. Yeah. I think that's interesting. Cause you know, for me, it really was this realization, like the Christian church in America, like Multnomah Bible college style is not good news for people who are poor for people who are Muslim, for people who are not white, for people who are not male, you know, all this. And then you would really focus in on the trauma. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, that's really interesting. Just yeah. seeing all the things that our churches, you know, we love talking about good news. You know that, Nate? You know how people always talk about just preach the gospel, just preach the good news. And sometimes I just felt like I was in that parable, like the emperor has no clothes. Because I'm like, mm. what is it? What do you think it is? That's literally my next question. As you both were talking, I'm just like, okay, so what, you know, we've talked about a lot about a lot of things that aren't right. And it feels kind of, uh, kind of obvious here, but let's just talk about that for a little bit. Like what is the good news and who does it need to be good news for in order for it to be good news? Yeah. And then the word gospel has almost become like a, tr- a trigger yeah, word for me or I something. Like, I feel there's a while where I, I couldn't even go to like, uh, I couldn't listen to a sermon because that, that's that word just gets thrown, especially in re- the reform circles that I grew up in. That word gets thrown around a lot. And I'm just like, but I don't feel like you even know what you're saying. I don't even, I don't think you even, we're not talking about the same good news here. You know, so what, what would you say? How would you think about that now? How do you, how do you explain that now? 
I want Crispin to go first because I always answer this question. Oh my god. They're pointing at each other. Yeah. Right. Uh, oh, my, my mind goes to like two different, cause I was thinking about the now and, and the not yet speaking of Bible college, right? <laughs> that was a term thrown a lot around a lot already. Not yet. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And I think that, uh, I think that the, the good news is that nothing can separate you from God's love. And I think that was the good news that Jesus came to bring. So, but you don't have to be a Christian. No. 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 And and I think like even that idea of like when I say that phrase God's love, like we need a better term, uh, because that is it has become such a rotten term that means nothing. You know, maybe it's that God likes you. Uh, I think that is some good news that God likes you just the way you are. Mm and is present with you and wants you as a part of a safe, healed, whole community, which ties into the second part, which is God is working towards a safe, healed, whole community, which brings up a lot of questions that I have around judgment because I worry a lot about judgment. I grew up with a lot of like feeling like God is always judging me. And yet I know that there are injustices in the world Um, so I think recently I've really taken a kind of restorative justice approach, uh, to what the good news is. So I think that, I think God is restoring all things. And I think that process will be, uh, more painful for some than others. But I do think that God is, is trying to restore and create a community of, safety um and security so that's my best shot wow that's good it makes me think about um being in churches where people are like you need to go out this week and tell people about jesus and i'm like one they already know who jesus is two what do you want me to tell them and I think that's like the important thing. Like, okay. what do you say about Jesus? This would be an awesome topic of conversation for your listeners. I would just be really curious because this is where my mind goes, right? I was trained to be a missionary. I was trained to know what the good news was. I went to Bible college to be a missionary. I was all set to do that. I literally had no clue what I was talking about. I was talking about an intellectual ascent to a certain amount of principles, right? Yep. Um, and then that's it. That's not an ethic for your life. That's just like an entry point into a club. And what was really interesting for both Crispin and I, uh, we've worked a lot with Muslims. We actually lived in Minneapolis for three years, mostly to live in community with um, Muslims from East Africa because there's a huge uh, population uh, in Minneapolis. And just that was our first experience of having people who are Muslim trying to convert us to their religion. And they'd be like, you're so close. Like I was a really good English teacher and I was like really good at becoming friends with people. And they'd be like, Oh my gosh, you're so close to being a perfect Muslim. Like you're just so close. Like just say this one little phrase, just say this one little phrase after me, just repeat after me. Then you're in with us. We're so excited. I was like, no, 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 no. That's my line to you. I'm supposed to tell you. To repeat right. this one phrase after me. And so that was like also a really eye-opening experience because um, they were also doing that out of love for me. Like we loved each other. And so of course you want 
to be with somebody. You want them to join your religion. And and I think after a while of, of me saying, I want to live my life trying to love Jesus, trying to love my neighbor. And I just thought, man, me trying to love Jesus means I actually have fallen in love with my neighbors and they're never converting to Christianity. Mm. And at this point, I love them so much. Mm. You know, I told this to Crispin many, many years ago, like if they're all going to hell, I'm going with them. Yeah. Like I would much rather be in hell with my friends, which people joke about that all the time, right? Like my Mark Twain jokes about that, all this stuff. Yeah. But I'm just like, I am talking about, I want to be in hell with Women who have suffered more than anybody else I've ever known in my life on earth. Mm-hmm. I want to be, if there is an afterlife, I want to be with them wherever they are. And I have to believe that that desire comes from God. That comes from some sort of loving presence that is outside of myself. Um, so that really shook me up because, uh, you know, once you start having all these thoughts, you can't really... You can't really share them with your church community. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. Yep. As we all as we all know. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter, co-host of the Leaving Eden podcast, and I was raised in a cult. I signed purity pledges. I cried at the altar. I went out door-to-door soul winning, and I didn't own a pair of jeans until I was 20 years old. I saw it all and did it all as I grew up completely immersed, pun fully intended, in the independent fundamental Baptist movement. With my co-host, Gavrielle Hakoen, I unpack all of this from the hilarious to the traumatic back to the hilarious on the Leaving Eden podcast. New episodes release every Monday on all podcast streaming platforms. We recommend new listeners. Start by checking out episode 57, in which we discuss the bite model and give an overview of my personal story. Yeah. You know, why Why do we do that? Why do we do this us and them, like, need to draw these lines of, of knowing who's in and who's out and who's saved and who's unsaved? And it's almost like we care more about that. And Crispin, kind of something you said, like, we almost care more about that than someone actually living a good life and a whole life and being a, a complete human being that's actually, yeah, living well and able to kind of give that to other people. They're all those things, but like you were saying, Danielle, like, but you know, they haven't crossed that line because they didn't say this thing or they don't mentally assent to this list of doctrines. It's like, yeah, but look at how they're living. Like, look at the, I mean, I'm, and I'm just quoting Jesus here, but like, look at the fruit. Mm-hmm. Even even just the languages we the language we use, and probably similar with with how you both kind of grew up or your church experience. But we call we call everything outside the church the world, and it's kind of this like very negative, like going the way of the world or kind of these worldly desires I have, you know, as if this is a bad thing. And but when you're in the church, then you're you're, you're good. But like the world out there is. Yeah, there's this us and them. There's this Christians wanting to draw these lines. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about. Uh, I, I'm just reflecting on what I've learned the last couple of years about the law, um, Jewish law, and what it seems like Yahweh was intending to create was this uh, place where marginalized people are taken care of. And that was Yahweh's goal, right, mm-hmm. was to create this society at least that's how I understand it, where uh, everyone is cared for. And there's this peace and justice, right? Shalom. Um, And I was just thinking, hearing Danielle's story, I was like, that is a picture of Shalom. Like the the community that came out of your English classes, right? The way that you cared for them, they cared for you. And it had nothing to do with saying any prayers. And it had Mm -hmm. everything to do with actually creating 
a community where people were caring for each other and marginalized people were cared for. And also Danielle as a privileged person was like invited into mm-hmm. that yeah, community. Like the mutuality well. is really key there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's so fascinating because for me, going back to that question of even what is the good news? Like I hate talking about the good news without talking about the bad news first. Like I feel yeah. that's like I think you and John Piper would get along. I was along. gonna say this is this is me like <laughs> almost being a fundy again, but instead of talking about like original sin and we're all like worms, you know, that God can't stand unless we say thank you, Jesus, for dying for us and all that stuff. For me, it's like if you have, you know one eye even partially open, you are aware that the world is a really messed up place. Like 2020, 2021, right? It's all on track to keep reminding us that things are so, so, so bad, right? And so like, how do we want to choose to live in a world that is increasingly, you know, unequal and and uh, getting more segregated, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, man, in scriptures, we really see a lot of the brokenness, the evil of humans to each other like I really don't want to negate like I push back on Crispin a lot like even him saying like God loves you just as you are I'm like but people do awful things to each other like what does God have to say about that and so that's a tension Crispin and I have he's like this awesome attachment therapist and I'm a very depressed angry uh woman I guess (laughs) um who, who I have a I'm really it's really easy for me to see all the bad in the world and so for me I'm like the good news is that God says this is not my dream for the world. The way the world is ordered is not how I want it to be. It's not, it was not his dream in the scriptures, right? The Hebrew scriptures is not his dream in the New Testament. It's not his dream now. But we see glimpses of this dream like sprinkled throughout. And we see it most, most you know, evidence in the work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, you kind of already brought this up, Nate. Like he's an incredibly practical person. Basically, all he did was tell like these little ethical tales to make people like kind of feel shitty about themselves if they needed to feel shitty about themselves and feel awesome about themselves if they had been people who had never been given access to power or privilege or like spiritual authority. And so for me, I'm like, Jesus is just the most practical person, which is why I love him Mm. so much. Like he was Mm. very much concerned with like, what are you doing right now? What are you going to do in response to me telling you that God's dream for the world is that everyone would flourish, that God wants uh, Gentiles, right? To be a part of his kingdom. Like they're in, they're in. And so for me, I'm like, man, it's immediate. It's exciting. It has ramifications for your money. It has ramifications for who you eat party with has ramifications for um you know how you treat people that society tends to uh marginalize like i don't know i get very excited because i'm like god's dream for the world is so beautiful and so big and it's also very very practical and it's very simple what you do is you find the most marginalized people in your community and you work to ensure that they flourish and when they flourish everybody's gonna flourish like that's it i don't know to me i'm like Let's do that. Let's keep working to that. And and um, at this point, you know, there's lots of people, I think, doing that work of trying to help people who are marginalized flourish. And and none of them are Christians in Portland that I've seen. Mm-hmm. It's been really fascinating. You know, there's all these like amazing mutual aid efforts happening and all these organizations springing up. And I'm like, they are doing God's work. And it's just like an honor to see it in action. And um, 
you know, it's one of my griefs is like the church, not only is the church not involved in doing God's work, but they are actually like blaspheming it at all turns, right? Like saying Black Lives Matter is horrible and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we're all a bunch of uh, socialist Antifa types. I'm like, I'm sad for you. You are missing out on what you always said you wanted. And it turns out I don't really think you wanted God's dream for the world. And that's just a really hard realization, you know? Crispin, your work centers around like psychology behind, I guess, our beliefs about God and how that impacts our behaviors. And we've been talking about a lot, a lot about the behaviors and what we see sort of at the end of the stream and the outputs from the things we believe. But what's beneath the surface of these issues? It seems like Christians function with a lot of fear, shame, guilt. I mean, fear. You know, in tech world, we have the the five whys that we use on you know user experience or user interface issues, problems, bugs like that. We we say if we if you ask five whys, you can get to kind of the core issue at hand. And I feel like if you do that with anything in the church or with theology, you're going to get to hell. You're going to get to heaven and hell. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, talking about fear, shame, guilt ends up harming themselves, ends up harming the world, ends up harming their their communities. And I think we're seeing some of that. Um, play itself out here these last few years specifically and you your focus you i believe you just turned in the your 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 book essentially to um on attachment theory and super excited to read that first of all i guess what is i had a friend tell me the other day that they feel like attachment theory as it relates to um to god and christianity is sort of going to be the next enneagram that's that's Mm. coming along here and and I feel like you're like right at the cutting edge of this. Let's hope because then I can become a millionaire. Then I can <laughs> dine then, with Dave Ramsey. And then I'll spend all his money <laughs> on the poor. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. All right. So, okay. So what is attachment theory? Like clinically, I guess, like what is that? Yeah. So, so basically it's just this idea that we really want to connect to at least one other person in our life. We want to feel close to them. We want to feel connected. And we have a lot of different strategies that we do to to do that. So if you think about like in a relationship, when you are in a fight with your partner, uh, what's the way that you respond? Do you like uh, pull away and like hope that things get better? Uh, do you like storm the castle and try to fight it out and like work it out? Um, those sorts of things. And so, um, of course, that also applies to God as well. And so really what's, what has struck me is I've, as a kind of like a scientist stepped back and looked at evangelical Christianity and said, like, what are the ways that we try to get close to God? Like, what are those strategies? But actually what I'd want to start with is, um, to share just like how I first started thinking about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was reading attachment literature um, about kids that had gone through emo- emotional neglect or emotional abuse. Um, and that is is part of the attachment system, right? So I'm trying to connect to my parent. It feels like there's something going wrong. There's something about like I'm I'm trying I'm reaching out for love and all I'm getting is pain and punishment and judgment. And so then that's creating this feeling in me like there's something really wrong with me. And so what they found with these children is they they feel like there's something at my core, something icky on the the very core of me that drives other people away when I really need love. 
And I was like, wait a minute. This is exactly what I was told in Sunday school. I was yeah. told that I have a dirty, sinful heart that God cannot stand to be around until I get a new heart. And so that really stood out to me because I was like, oh my gosh, this is like this ruptured attachment, this this abusive, emotionally abusive attachment sort of framework fits both children that have experienced emotional abuse and also like the the framework we've been given for God. And so that really helped me understand, oh, like this is why my relationship with God has been so strained and felt so terrible and I've I've felt all the shame because I was told really early on given this message that there's something so wrong with you that you don't deserve love and belonging, yeah. right? Brené Brown, who I'm not always a fan of, but she does uh we'll we'll just use her as her definition of shame, right? She says like Shame is the feeling that because I've fallen below a certain standard, I don't deserve love or belonging. And I'm like, that is literally what I was told in Sunday school. You have sinned, therefore you deserve to be and separated what kind, from God And what kind God of sins forever. are we talking about as a kid, to be clear? Oh, yeah. When they, in Sunday school, right? They'd be like, "Did you were you mean to, were you mean to your sister?" Right, right. Well, you're going to hell. <laughs> well, you know, it's the, just like right. it's wild. Yeah, it's yeah. Wild. I mean, here's the thing. Like, uh, uh, so we have a we have a podcast where we talk about 80s and 90s um, media, right? So, oh yeah. So you've done. I'm trying to remember all the seasons. So the first season was Adventures in Odyssey. I know uh-huh. you've done like Frank Peretti, right? Yeah, yeah. Frank Peretti. McGee we did C.S. Lewis. Bit. We're about to okay. do one. On or we're currently doing one on Christian hardcore, um, okay. which hits on the shame stuff. But we also talked about McGee and Me, which was a focus on the family uh, video series. I just remember the the being terrified of. I mean, tornadoes are a scary thing, but I just remember yeah. the what was it called? Twister and shout or Twister yeah. and shout? Twister and <laughs> yeah. shout. That was. I feel like that was that was always checked out of the church library yeah. and. Couldn't get your hands on the on the copy. Always, one always copy. checked out. Right, <laughs> closest you could get to like suspense. <laughs> one of those stories, the dad sits down with the son and is like, "Well, the problem with sin, the the kid had like told a white lie, and and the dad's like, "Well, lying lying's a problem because you hurt other people, but more important than that is that uh, when you lie." it cuts off your relationship from God or when you sin, it cuts off your relationship from God. But I was always told that I wasn't saved by works. I was saved by a relationship with God. But if my works can cut off my relationship with God, and if an 11 year old by lying can, can cut off their relationship from God and potentially be separated from God forever, that is terrifying. And that to bring it back around, that activates our attachment system. Our attachment system is this this drive to connect and it is actually like connecting to the fight or flight part of our brain wow so you think about what it's like to be that kid and probably a lot of listeners don't have to imagine this to be terrified all the time like am i gonna like i love god and I need God to protect me to take care of me to take me to heaven right all those parental things yeah and yet it feels like I have to walk this really precarious, like I have to try to be really good because if I get on God's bad side, if I if I don't if I lie, then God is gonna get really mad at me, God's not gonna like me, God's gonna push me away, and it's gonna cut us off, cut off our relationship. Wow. 
just to give a picture of what secure, healthy attachment relationships look like, it's you can you can totally screw up, you can do whatever, and I'll still be here. Like we need to talk about it. We can't, you know, we can't just like let things go, but like we'll talk about it together. And that like the relationship is not threatened. The relationship is not threatened. Well, I think any like normal parent resonates with that, and they're like, well, yeah, I mean, of course, you know. And this right. this is one of the things that became so psychologically exhausting for me in the church was and as a pastor and like was having to say call things that were clearly bad good and then things that were clearly good things then we would call them good in the world and just in our daily lives with other people call those things bad because the special you know god gets a pass on things that are bad and um mm-hmm. it's just stuff like yeah I was thinking about like if I was to do this as, you know, I've got two daughters. If I was to do this as a father, everyone would be like, dude, you're like, that's, that's horrible, you know? But when, when we're talking about God, it's like, well, it's okay because he's God and his ways are higher than our ways. And, um, you know, it's like, no, no. then these are the kinds of things. And when you bring them to the world, they're just going, I, there, I used it, the world. But like, when you bring these to people outside <laughs> of the church, they're going, what are you talking about? Like, this doesn't even, this doesn't even make sense. And I do want, I do want to get to the, the secure attachment, but I, I think it'd be helpful if you, because I think a lot of listeners would resonate with some of these, um, some of these yeah, four types, right? And one is the secure, but the the other three, the shut down, the shame filled, and the anxious. If you could kind of walk through those quickly and just like share a little bit about what what those look like, and maybe yeah, yeah some ways those kind of manifest. Yeah. So thinking about the the anxious, um, that would correlate with a. Um, ambivalent or preoccupied attachment if you are familiar or want to look that up. But when I'm thinking about that, particularly with God, it's basically like I am so anxious about losing connection with God that I have to make sure to get it right all the time. And so, um, you know, and that can look different for different people. Sometimes that would be an approach of doing things in the church. Sometimes it's quiet time. Sometimes it's like my thought life. It can like almost veer into like religious OCD. Um, and sometimes I'm like, I'm not quite sure what the difference is, but um, it's like this idea of like God is like a helium balloon and you're like gripping on like white knuckled as tightly as you can. Yeah. Um, and there's there's so many examples of this. Um in evangelicalism, where people say, like, if you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards, which means that you can't actually rest. Would these potentially be the people that are saying the sinner's prayer every every night before they go to bed just because they want to be sure and they, they feel like they're losing right. because of something? They, and it kind of bleeds into maybe some of the other um, attachment styles, unhealthy attachment styles as well. But yeah, yeah, I just feel like trying to like hold on to something because you're afraid you're losing it. Definitely, yeah. And it can be something like, uh, so like, clear is that but it can also be um it can be anything right it can be anything that you're worried like well if i stop doing this like i'm going to lose my relationship with god i'm going to lose my connection with god uh rather than being able to rest and say like yeah like whether or not i do these things god is still present with me you have this on your website for anxious spirituality you say one study uh examined connections between mental health and how we relate to god And it found that an anxious attachment style with God significantly predicted depression and anxiety symptoms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which makes so much sense, right? If you are having to manage, not only like manage your relationships and your work and whatever else is going on in your life, and you have to put all this energy into 
into managing your relationship with God, that is going to take a toll. And it also means that this, you know, we talk about having peace and comfort and rest with God. But if this is your operating relationship with God, you never get peace or rest. Mm. And that, like, if you compare that to scripture, that has nothing to do with like Sabbath rest. So Mm. obviously something's gone wrong along the way. Okay. Talk to me about shutdown spirituality. Um, You have this my boy, Francis Chan, that's where my ministry was, you know, I did all the ministry with Francis and we talk about that on the show a bit, but you have a quote from him from Crazy Love, which says, uh, worry implies that we don't quite trust God, suggesting that both worry and stress reek of arrogance. And then like these themes that we hear in the church of like, deny yourself, lean on your understanding, your heart is deceitful. Uh huh. Very, very detached from like your actual body and what you're, you're feeling and right. You know, all these yeah senses that you have. Yeah. And it correlates with this attachment style of being avoidant or dismissive, which is if you grew up in a family where emotions are not okay, then you learn to stuff them down. And the same thing happens in the church, right? We're told by like Francis Chan that like, you can't be anxious or you can't worry because God is, you know, God finds that foul Um, and, you know, doesn't like the smell of those things. And so we stuff those things down. And that goes back to the masks of this last year, right? Faith versus fear. Like, do you have faith in God? Mm. Or are you afraid and you're going to wear a mask? And it means that there's not room in our faith for us to actually have emotions. Um, And this is like just such a huge thing in evangelicalism, right? We talk about like, you know, stick to the facts. This is when you want to just learn the the system and the theory without emotionally engaging with your faith. Um, and it kind of is goes both ways. It's both people that feel like emotions don't have a place in faith, um, but also people that use faith to like squash down their emotions, right? So they're like, maybe their friend hurts their feelings and, and rather than like rather going than... and having a, a, a difficult but intimate conversation with a friend, Right. They're like, well, God tells me to forgive so I can just like push that feeling away. Well, and, you know, I think what we've been seeing a lot with the Church 2 movement, and I just did an interview um, in the last episode with uh, a researcher into sexual and spiritual abuse and some of the scandals and the cover-ups that happen. And I, I'm just thinking the whole time, like, and people talk about it, like, why is the why does it feel like it's potentially more prevalent in the church? And I feel like we have this culture a bit that tells you from the time you're three years old, if you grew up in the church, that your feelings and your, like what your, what your body is telling you essentially is, is bad and is wrong. And you need to work on shutting that down and work on just trying to listen to this outside voice or read this book. And I feel like that creates this breeding ground, um, potentially for someone to go like, well, I know my, my body's telling me this, I'm feeling this red flags are going, <laughs> are going up here, but I, I can't, I need to, you know, deny those things I'm thinking because that's what I've been told to do. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if this one kind of crosses over into that at all. Oh yeah, definitely. And I talked with, um, I interviewed my friend Becky Castle Miller for an upcoming episode on our podcast about emotions in evangelicals and looking at Tim LaHaye and, uh, Dr. Dobson on what they wrote about emotions in some of their early books in the like 60s, 70s, and 80s. And basically, um, there are examples of both of them telling women that are in abusive marriages that their anger is not of God. Mm. 
and to dismiss that anger, which then means that if we have if we have to dismiss our own anger, if we have to shut down our emotions, then that anger that actually says this is wrong and a boundary has been crossed, like we're not going to have access to that. And um, oppressive power systems are just going to be able to to roll roll over people, basically. Mm. Yeah, I think the other piece of this. So there's the anger part, but um, you know, a, a good example would be I think it was. Uh, the Gospel Coalition, maybe it was Desiring God, one of those, um, you know, published an article in the last couple of years about the sin of empathy. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and it's that same sort of thing of like emotions, emotions aren't okay. Um, and so what we end up doing is we don't emotionally engage. And actually, it's when we can emotionally engage that we are impacted by others suffering. Hmm. But if we have like this, like theological system that says, well, like some people are poor or go through trauma because God ordained it, then it makes it easier for us to not have to step into their shoes. And it kind of helps us like keep a bit of distance from it. Like, oh, well, that's just the way it should be. God wanted it to be that way. Mm -hmm. So we find these like theological answers to these like really difficult existential questions and they're not really answers they're just like these theological systems that keep us from having to dive into our emotions yeah and and i will say like i'm someone who's more on that avoidant spectrum that's and christmas is more on the anxious attachment when it comes to both god and people i mean i think they're kind of related and i will say just to all you listeners out there just even if you're avoidant you still can wind up with depression and anxiety. (laughs) It's not just reserved for the uh, anxious attachment people. Because then once you finally access your emotions, it's like, oh, there's a lot of them um, to deal with. Wow. I'm somehow anxious and really good at suppressing my emotions. Uh, let's talk about um, the last one. And I feel like this this is most resonant with me and, and what I see, my own experience, but also just with some of the kind of radical movement that I was a part of. I think um, when I say radical, I mean like the David Platt, the Francis Chan, like these type of, mm. and the John Piper, I guess, to the, you know, um, don't waste your life, that type of stuff. But shame-filled spirituality. Often the story of Christianity is introduced here in the West of like, we're horrible, rotten sinners. There's nothing no good in us there's nothing good about us and you know just god even god not wiping us off the face of the earth is that's grace you know that's this general <laughs> grace um which i think they even have a, that's like general grace is that the right term i don't I'm, I'm i'm losing some of my is that general no common grace common, common grace. grace common grace yeah the fact that he, that God doesn't just wipe us out. So nice of God. <laughs> and you know, I've, uh, you have on your on your site, Crispin. You have you say we regularly hear shame filled messages in the church. We know that because of our sinful hearts, God is repulsed and finds us thoroughly unpleasing when it comes to personal relationship. As John Piper puts it, um, of course, mm-hmm. God only delights in us when we become someone slightly or wholly different. Uh, Piper continues, God sees the incremental advances of our transformation by his spirit and delights in them. I, I remember it hit me like a few years ago. I was like, and you've already, you've already said it, but that essentially the way I'm able to have a relationship with God is that God throws a white sheet over me mm-hmm. and then is able to be in the room with me because, and this white sheet is Jesus and the blood of Jesus that covers my sin. But essentially God can't interact with me until, until that happens 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. Talk to, talk a little bit about shame filled spirituality. Yeah, exactly. It's it's really this idea of like there's something so broken and wrong with me that God is disgusted. Uh, you know, if God is close to me, and really it puts us in this position where either I can be close to God, but I can feel judged and feel God's disgust, right? Or I can be far. And that feels better, but it also doesn't feel good because I do want to be connected to God. I do want to be close. And a lot of what drives that is like, I, you know, we try so hard to be good, to be good enough. Um, and, and the church is, it just gives us all these mixed messages um, around like, it doesn't really matter. It's not about being good. <laughs> and then also all these implicit messages about like, it actually is important to be good. Um, and, uh, you know, and to like be a good boy is what <laughs> how I think of it, you know, uh, behave well in order to get close to God, even in the way that we use language, right? Are you close to God or far from God? That literally means like, what's your behavior like this past week? Hmm. Which is so messed up. And yes. I think that's important to take a, a moment and say, you know, who was it? Was it Bob Eckblad who we heard say, like, the biggest heresy in the American church is this belief that sin separates you from God, right? Like, if you do something bad, you're you're farther away from God. And that still blows my mind to this uh-huh. day. Like, I yeah. still need to be reminded of that. And I still find that is such a part of Christianese is, like, mm-hmm. how close or far are you from God today? I'm like... God is literally everywhere. (laughs) I don't know how to explain it to you, but like you can't ever be far away from God, like ever. Right. But what we end up doing is we end up um, basically, um, it's like, I'm not good enough. So if I can't be good enough, I can at least prove to God that I know I'm not good enough. So all things like I'm terrible, I'm, you know, or even like, it, it like verges into like self-hatred, yep. which um, as like a little plug, I am uh, launching into a, a season of our podcast about Christian hardcore because a lot of the Christian hardcore I listened to when I was a teenager was literally stuff like God take me because I hate me. Wow. Um, God, like hold me close wash my mind, destroy the me that lives inside. I'm a vampire. I'm a vampire. You know, all this like, wow. You know, uh, this is no place for the light of the world. And what I what I find so striking about that is like, I think everybody felt this way. It was just like, it was only like the hardcore bands because nobody was really like, as long as you didn't say anything too bad, you could say whatever you wanted. But I think that it's actually like, whether you listen to that music or not, it's a look into like the psychological world of the evangelical church, sort of like what's going on underneath it all is it does, it leads to self-hatred. That's what I was going to ask. Like how, how does this impact us psychologically to, to grow up being told, especially for those that grew up, grew up in the church being told that we're bad, we're, we're sinful. Yeah. It's like, as a, as a parent, I would never, you would never say um, that like there's this, even the, even the image that is drawn is these, is this chasm, mm-hmm. you know, you have these like two cliffs and anyone who's familiar with Christianity has seen the, 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 the two cliffs and God's on one side and, and humans are on the other and you need the cross, you need Jesus in order to get to the other side. There's this, there's this problem. And I've thought a lot about this, like this problem that we have, you know, cause when you, yeah. when you go to the, the world, when you go to those outside the church and you try to take the system of belief to them, 
you're, you start by c- trying to convince them that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's, that's actually one of the most difficult things to do is trying to, um, and one of you, I think Danielle, maybe you mentioned that earlier in this, in this chat, but are we creating a problem in order to, to solve it a bit? And then also, yeah, like how does this impact us psychologically? These, you know, the songs you're mentioning, but also just this belief that we're, we're bad, we're horrible, rotten, and we're separated. Yeah. I mean, for one, it going back to the trauma piece, a lot of times experiencing trauma creates this sense that like there's something inherently bad or broken about me. And unfortunately, then you walk into the doors of the church and they're like, yep, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> there is something really wrong with you. Well, the, the worst thing is they're like, no, God loves you. And then the longer you stay there, the more you realize well, there is like a lot of caveats to that yeah. statement that all are welcome and God loves you. Because right. churches will even say God loves you just as you are. Yeah. Right? And right. you're saying, no, we're talking about what's actually underneath all that, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which is no, you know, and I think we we pick on Reformed theology a lot, but I don't think all of us even recognize how Reformed theology is like truly at the basis of most like non-denominational churches, all of yep. that. And, totally. and and I mean, you've talked about that enough on the podcast, but. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like Max Lucado says, uh, God loves you just as you are, uh, which is the same thing Mr. Rogers says. Uh, he says. <laughs> so far, ex- so good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but he loves you too much to keep you that way, which wow. has this implicit, like, I always think about which it. Which I love. You guys are all awesome and totally deconstructed and all that. That's great. I am just like, people suck sometimes. God does love us too much to let us abuse our neighbors. That's true. What is, what the the issue that comes up is that it's this feeling like, I have to become a different person in order for God to really be happy. Hmm. I I think there are so many better ways to talk about it. And and one thing that keeps on coming up is um, there's this book by Doug Frank called Gentler God. I think I still have your copy of that. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. I just saw it in the garage. Yeah. Okay. I always always have uh, extra copies of that book around. (laughs) He talks about how like human parents understand that like their kids disobedience doesn't mean that they don't love their parents, Hmm. but like evangelical Christianity doesn't do that. Right. Is like, if you sin, it's because you don't love God and God is going to take it personally. Yeah. 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 God is pretty fragile. Right. And I think about that, like we need, we really need someone to come alongside us and be like, hey, this is not the way to do this. And that's what we do with our kids. They are mean to each other. They yell. They throw tantrums, right? And they actually need our help. Hmm. And I don't want to minimize people that have that have done horrific atrocities. I know that's different than my kid throwing a tantrum. But I also think that that's kind of the way forward is like we need a God that is present with us um, that says, I'm not going anywhere and we're going to like work this out and we're going to talk this out. And on some level, like this isn't actually who you are. Like I see who you are. Uh, the way that I've talked with, um, Mako about this, who was one of your first guests, Mm -hmm. we've talked about like the evangelical ideas, like you might look good on the outside, but like at your core, you're rotten. But I think it's the other way. Like, yeah, we get tarnished on the outside by sin and by the 
decisions we make and, and trauma trauma um and just by like our own selfishness whatever but like at our core we are made in the image of god and god is working to heal us into who we are not to change us from this like worm into something mm. new yeah yeah i want to come back to what you were saying danielle because it's, it's not that god doesn't want to change anyone or even if we take god out of it and just say of course we want to become better human beings we want to grow we want to change of course we want to eradicate things from our lives that are hurting other people like yes we want that but it almost feels like the things that you're bringing up here with um with attachment it's almost like the church is not preparing people i know this is true for me to actually be (laughs) contributing members of society that are able to to look at issues and problems and like be able to think about those because we're and especially because we're told so much like I need to, I need to like turn off all my feelings and emotions and what, what I actually think and just try to understand like, what is this 2000 year old text telling me I'm supposed to think about LGBTQ people and, and we're just not even talking about that, but, but, um, (laughs) but we're not, we're not prepared. I know I wasn't, we we talked about it on, um, an utterly heretical episode. Like it's almost like I'd broken my leg or something. It's like the first time I'm, I'm walking on it again after a while. And like, I have to like, exercise these muscles again like my 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 brain and my my heart and like i've been i've been kind of turning these things off for so long mm-hmm. and then you come to issues like real issues in our world and it's like i don't know that's what does the bible say like what you know it's like we're not we're not preparing people i guess yeah no it's totally true it's like um i mean two things come to mind one is there's research that people with secure attachment are more likely to make ethical decisions in their businesses. Hmm. So when we know that our acceptance is not based on our behavior, we actually end up like having better behavior and treating other people better. But the other thing is I think about, uh, you know, whether whatever generation you're a part of, whether it's Mr. Rogers um, or Daniel Tiger, um, (laughs) we know that like actually naming our emotions, talking about them, uh, knowing that they're okay, knowing that we're okay and having those conversations actually leads us into emotional health so that we're not, you know, acting out in ways that are harming other people so that we're not like dealing with our stress in ways that end up, you know, like so that we're not buying $400 million houses because <laughs> we, because uh, that's how we get our sense of worth out of life, right? Um, yeah. That sort of thing. So I think that, There is a lot to be said there around like, yeah, the church, like if we're just trying to figure out the right answers, we're not learning anything about emotional health or community health. It's so true. And going back to Mr. Rogers, like he was like the first ordained minister of television, right? He like went to seminary in the Presbyterian church. And the thing I love about Mr. Rogers, and this is like the Venn diagram of where Crispin and I overlap <laughs> is Mr. Rogers. <laughs> um, because, you know, my whole focus is on how can we love our neighbors? Like how can we work towards the common good? Mm. And the reality is you can't do that if you hate yourself. You yeah. can't do that if you think that, God hates you or God has condemned your neighbors to eternal conscious torment. Yeah. Like all of that really complicates that. So I love to think about Mr. Rogers being like 
this is why he had his TV show, Nate, okay? He did it because he knew there were so many kids out there suffering. So many kids, you know, who came from homes where their parents were too busy or there was trauma. There's so much going on. He was thinking about these isolated little kids who have no power, no way to protect themselves. And he's like, I'm going to look into the camera and I'm going to talk to them. Mm. And I'm going to make them think I'm talking to them. And I'm going to tell them when they are like two and three years old, Maybe four. I'm going to tell them I like you just the way you are. Getting chills over here. Right? That's what he did. And you know why he did that? It's because he, and he did it in the context of a neighborhood because he said, this will help you be good neighbors. This will help you be good people in the world. It's based off of his own understanding. He had a very traumatic childhood. He was very alone and isolated. And he said, I'm going to find kids when they're, they're most vulnerable, they're least powerful. And I'm going to tell them I love them. And I'm going to tell them I want you to be a part of this neighborhood, a part of this thriving community where everyone will flourish. That's what I want, Nate. <laughs> okay, then then what we're, t- what we're saying is... And you just said it, is that essentially what the church is is doing from the time someone is two or three, the message that they're giving those children Mm -hmm. and the message that Mr. Rogers, which is the best version that that I think the world has has put forward um, for like messages to, at least on a mass scale, like messages to give to to little children. I think it's pretty, pretty much in agreement. Um, with most people, they're fairly opposite. Well, that's what makes it so interesting is like, so we see how the church has done so much damage. And yet there's this part of me that's like, but Mr. Rogers was the church. So I think we're all in this tension of like, how do we reclaim some of that? Like he did it because he believed in God, right? And yet he's the extreme minority. Do you realize that when you're talking about Mr. Rogers, you said the same thing that I said about what the good news is i know okay <laughs> just just maybe. no just kidding i mean i did know i'm just i'm just trying to draw out those parallels of like it's in the context of the neighborhood and it's for yeah. the point of being a good neighbor in mm-hmm. these flourishing communities and we need to keep that with us now for me growing up it was like how do we have a flourishing community you get everybody to come to your church you get everybody to think just like you well, here's the deal. We live in a pluralistic society and uh, not everybody's going to convert to Christianity. And we have seen the absolute poverty of the evangelical, the white evangelical imagination in the United States as pluralization becomes ever more evident, right? Trumpism is just like a direct result of white evangelicals continuing to realize, um, you know, we're the minority here and we're going to become ever more the minority. And so honestly, looking at the trajectories, it's going to get more violent before it gets better yeah. at this point. Not Nate, to Because men- of how we've been discipled. Right. I was going to say not to mention that like people getting together who have all said the sinner's prayer has very rarely actually resulted in in changing their the society and community around them towards justice. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So in, in light of Mr. Rogers and, uh, in this whole, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, Christians are always, are always there. There's, there are always different types of Christians. I think they're not maybe the, the general 
kind of um, mainstream version of Christianity. But yeah, like he was doing that because of what he believed, certainly. But this question, I've had this, it's been in my last few interviews I've done and kind of just inspiring a bit of this um, reboot of the show. But do, do we have to say then that that some of the theology that we believe, that we grew up with, that the, that the church is still teaching today, even if you just want to talk about hell, but like, do we have to say that it's, that the theology is, is abusive. I think the fruit of it is a continual pattern of abuse perpetuating in the church. So I would say, look at the fruit. The fruit is oppression. But what about, okay, so just to keep pushing on it. So like heart is deceitful. Uh I mean, this is in the, this is in the Bible and we can talk about, well, it doesn't mean that means this other thing, but you know, lean not on your own understanding. Mm -hmm. Deny yourself this this idea whether whether we want to say you know well that's not really what it was talking about when it was talked about hell that is the theology that is you know largely believed in the church um, so we can reclaim but also do we have to say that some of these things if we if we were to if I was to be that type of a father if I was to be that type of a friend we would say that's that's an abusive relationship that's emotionally that's toxic at least it's it's traumatic. Um, do we have to say that about some of this theology? It's a very, very leading Definitely. question. Oh, thanks, Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Um, and I think I go the route of reclaiming, um, but I also totally understand people that are like, I'm out. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so I, I want to say that part for definitely, but I, I think that's been the most helpful thing for me around learning about attachment science. Um, and you know, I'm a postmodernist. I don't, I don't think like attachment science is a golden st- uh, standard of truth, but it does tell us a lot about what healthy relationships look like. And I can see how, um, if we looked at the evangelical good news in terms of God being a parent, uh, yeah, that is a, a parent-child relationship that I would want to do some clinical interventions around. Mm. So I actually don't do uh, child therapy. But uh, yeah, it's really, really problematic. And what the other thing that I found is that um, as I've learned about, like, here's a picture of secure attachment. And even here, some of the like neurobiology around secure attachment um, that I also find parallels for that in scripture as well. So I think I've been able to go back and say, um, like, for example, one thing that creates secure attachment is just this experience of being together without any sort of goal, without any sort of um, judgment or assessment. Mm-hmm. And um Sunday church usually is like assessment, right? Like, how are you doing this week with God? What are you supposed to be doing, et cetera? But uh, Sabbath was just the opposite. Sabbath was actually this thing that God instituted as God instituted a new nation to say one day a week, we're going to just be together. And actually the the neuroscience plays out that that actually creates uh, safety and creates secure relationships. And so I think if you, if you look for it, you can find it. Hmm. What do you think? Well, I mean, on one hand, I'm like, I think white evangelicalism in the U S is screwed and is never coming back from 
what has been revealed in the past four or five years. And good riddance. Yeah. I think good riddance. Like, it has done more damage, right, to the name of Jesus, I think, than anything in, in my history, at least, right, that I can think of. Right. Um, I do tend to push back a little bit with people, like, wanting to talk about de- deconstruction. Like, for me... I've learned so much from people of other religions and other faiths and looking at history. So I think for me, looking at historical, global, not just Christianity, but religions in general, it's just like the vast majority of people throughout history have had some kind of framework for interacting with the divine and thinking about how that impacts their communities, right? And so I just don't want to give that up. And I don't think I can personally (laughs) but um for me that's just what's been so important it's like man i grew up you know probably one of the things most of us who grew up evangelical can do is really try and get away from the pressure of this individualized relationship with the divine and for me i just find a lot of comfort in i fundamentally believe that god is loving and i believe that god is a creator right these are just like the two non-negotiables i have and then i'm like i think god loves everybody. I don't think God loves me more than anybody else. I don't think I'm special. I just think God loves everybody. And therefore I find a lot of comfort in that. And it makes me go after abusers. It makes me go after people who are hurting my neighbors Mm. because I know how loved they are by God. And so for me, it actually really propels me in my justice work. And I want to keep, um, keep kind of going back to that central theme of like, we are beloved children made in the image of God, all of us. And that should inform everything we do. And I'm not just like one special chosen person trying to get people onto my team. Like we're all on God's team. Yeah. Therefore, we better be trying to like help other people flourish where we are now. Yeah. Kind of wrapping up here, just a couple, couple more questions. You know, a lot of our listeners have kind of weighed things and realized that they you know, decided, I guess, that it's not it's not worth it to continue engaging in in the system that they feel is you know oppressive or maybe they and for some and this is sort of more, more my story is like not I just can't kind of get myself to believe some of the the quote unquote facts of of the Bible anymore and but yeah so I guess some have decided I guess essentially to you know, that they can be a whole complete person love their neighbor without this this specific religious system and maybe it's another religious system or or no specific faith, but what, what's, what's been that line for you, I guess, to, and I told you I was going to ask you this on, on Twitter, but what, what has kept you identifying as Christians and what do you feel like has, has made it, you know, Crispin, you had said, and Daniel, you just said, but you are about redeeming. Um, and, and our show is largely has been about redeeming as well. Um, but yeah, what, what has made it, what has made you say, like, is it more just like you're kind of, you're choosing this story as your story that you're, you're rolling with, because this is, this has been your experience in the past, which is largely, I think what it, what it was for me. That's like, this is the story I knew. This is the, this is, I think Danielle, you're right. Like everyone, everyone does have that. Um, well, not everyone, but a lot of people and a lot of humans, we just want to interact with the divine, the universe, like something in, in a, in a different way. And this is, this is the way that I, access that this is this is what was handed to me but so is that is that more what it is for you or like what's what's been that line for you of like you know because we've seen a lot of crazy stuff over the last Mm -hmm. four or five years as as we've talked about yeah what keeps you identifying as as christian 
I'll just go first because I'm sure Kristen's going to have something so much better than me to say. I just want to say that I recognize that there's something within me that I'm just like a really deeply religious person and my whole life is oriented around, I wake up thinking about God. I wake up mad at God. I wake up just like a constant conversation with God, like at all times. Mm. So I'm like, I don't think that is normal. And so it's really hard for me to talk about it in a setting where I know so many people have been so hurt. And like Crispin said, like, we just totally understand why you would say, you know, go for it. Like you need to take care of yourself. And I also feel as someone who has been writing about my faith for the last 10 years, like sort of being a semi-public professional Christian has really done a number on me um, spiritually in a really negative way. And so at this point, I am looking forward to the summer of just taking a summer off of being on social media and just saying like, what do I believe if I'm not trying to save the world? What do I believe if I don't have to perform Christianity in public? And I feel a lot of pressure where it's like, all these activists who still are Christians are like, you can, you can deconstruct everything, but like, Jesus is good. Jesus is good. And I'm like, okay, like Jesus can handle if I don't think he's good for a while. Like just calm down everyone. Like there's just so much fear and so much scarcity. And I'm just like, you guys, God, like God is everywhere. And if we open our eyes and if we open our ears, to what God's dream is and how we might be invited into it. I'm like, your life is going to be so full, but it's not going to be great. And that's the thing I, d- I don't have quite figured out. I feel like being in relationship with God both wounds and heals me at the same time because I am a person of privilege and, and relative power. I feel like I'm always being invited into seeing like, wow, this is messed up. Wow, I need to learn about this. And sometimes that feels like a gift and sometimes it does not. And so I I don't want to pretend to have it all figured out. Um, but I don't know. I just really want to say that for some reason out loud. Like if you feel that pressure of like, you can give up a lot, but don't give up Jesus. I don't know. I'm at this point where I'm like, I think Jesus can handle if you need to give him up for yeah. a while. That's just where I'm at. Yeah. 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 I think that like one thing that is really important to me when I think about scriptures, I do look at the scriptures like the the you know i'm thinking about like the old testament and new testament and especially the old testament and especially the torah of like a gift from god to humanity around like here is how we live together well um and i think it was written for a specific time specific place um and, you know, I, I, I don't take like a literal uh, <laughs> approach to that. Um, you know, I, I, I appreciate some of the um, scholars that have pointed out, like, really, like the, the Torah was pointing toward this like ideal um, of, you know, marginalized people being taken care of. And we, we know that if the marginalized are taken care of, then everyone is taken care of. Hmm. Um, and I think that uh, Jesus... Um, comes and in, in, in is the embodiment of that. So I don't think in a lot of ways, I don't think that's new. And that's really important to me because it means it, it, it addresses shame because it says that like the person that has been told you are not worthy, um, you're not part of us, you're worthless, uh, 
it means that they are worthy of being taken care of and being invited into community. So I think it has these political implications and psychological implications that say every person is valuable. God loves every person and every person is invited into this healed uh, community or healing community. And, and for sometimes, sometimes people with privilege or power, that means that they have like stepping into that community is going to cost them something. Right. So I think that's the, you know, good news, bad news. I always think about um, John, John the Baptist said that, um, you know, the, the mountains will be, uh, brought low so that the valleys may be filled. And I'm like, you know, hmm. a white, uh, white man, uh, Christian, married, heterosexual. Uh, so I'm like at the mountain. So if I want to see justice done, like that means like my mountain is going to be lowered. Um, but, you know, I think that that is good news. Yeah. Okay. So the last, last question, I usually wrap this, wrap interviews with this. I'm talking to people. I just ask, where where do you find hope? Where are you finding hope? Where have you been finding hope? Yeah, what does that look like for you? Hope. <laughs> it's getting it's getting harder to, to I was, find. I was hoping you were just gonna jump in with something, Chris Ben. Well, I was thinking yesterday about um I I'm a therapist and I work with couples and um and it is very rewarding, but also very hard work. Um, and there are so many aspects that go into obviously, uh, couple relationships and, um, and couples end up, you know, often end up very like embittered with each other. And sometimes people split up and that happens. Um, but when I see people being able to like turn towards each other and share vulnerably and like put down their weapons, um, that is really beautiful to me. And, um, on some level, it's like when I can see that happen, then it gives me hope that relationships can be repaired. Hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is, I don't really have tons of like practical things to say because as someone who loves being with my neighbors the past year has just been the worst yeah. thing ever for me personally but I will say like going back to the bible right like there's this amazing genre called lament and there's actually tons of the bible is lament and I did not learn about that yeah. in bible college very much and it they usually end with hope but before you get to hope right you have to um, articulate reality for just how awful it really is and then you need to grieve in some way and then you can arrive at hope and so for me it's just like this constant swirl of trying to do the work of naming reality um and the injustice we see uh grieving that and then getting to hope so i I would say even everything we've talked about today right for most of us probably if you're listening to this podcast like articulating the reality that white evangelicalism has um made a right mess of things, yeah. right? Grieving the relationships, the people we love, the people we grew up with and the choices they're making and the political beliefs they have and how they choose to not engage in certain realities, right? Like we we have so much to grieve. We have so we still have so much work to do even just articulating reality. Like, right? We're living in a world of fake news and so um weirdly enough, I find a lot of hope in saying like 
it's really been revealed right now. Like there's no going back right from this point. And so that gives me a lot of hope. I still think we will continue to have to do this work of naming it. And guess what? Like we can leave. I hope we all do. I, I, Crispin knows this. I like to run around the house just yelling, time's up! Because I just like love that phrase um, that came with the Me Too and Church Too movement. And I'm just really excited for there to be some time's up uh, when it comes to white evangelicalism. Yeah. And uh, I'm excited to see a lot more um, collectivist, local, small groups of, you know, people who are committed to mutual aid and pursuing questions of um, spirituality in in groups where, again, there's this focus on mutuality and on the flourishing of a neighborhood. I'm like, it's going to be exciting. The en- Okay, I'm here. I'm making a prediction. It's the end of the megachurch era. Long live hmm. weirdos living in houses and, uh, you know, just doing it real low-key style. I don't think... This is the end of Christianity in the U.S., but I think it's mm. going to be radically different, and um, I'm pretty excited for that part. Yeah, we can we can hope. Yes, stand on hope. Yes. We can hope. We can hope. That's the that's the reality we're moving into. Well, thank you so much. This has been, um, I think, helpful. We got into a lot of stuff, and I hope this has been helpful for you, listeners. And but yeah, just thank you so much for the work that you're doing and. Um, and just a lot of stuff that people maybe don't see, even just the the commitment that you have to your community and to your neighbors and just the, the stuff that you're doing on the ground every day, the things you're thinking about, you know, as you're eating your dinner and just stuff that maybe doesn't come through on Twitter or the books or the articles or the podcast. Just thank you for just being being the real deal and trying to to love people and lay down your power and really do that hard work. So. Yeah, just appreciate both of you a lot. It was great talking to you, Nate. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Thank you for all the work that you do. I know. It is not, mm-hmm. uh, it is a lot of work to do a podcast, so we really appreciate you hosting these conversations. All right, well, thank you so much for spending this time with me. If you want to be part of our next Zoom call and really dive deeper into a lot of these topics, first of all, you really should, because the last one we had was just a blast. I loved connecting with so many of you. And uh, you can find out how to join the next one at almostheretical.com and just click on Zoom call up in the corner. I'm grateful that you're on this journey with us. And I love reading all of your emails that you send in. I personally read every single one and often with tears in my eyes just because of the stories that you share and the experiences that you all have had, some of which I have personally resonate with because of an experience I had. And then many that I just have no clue what that's like. So just know that you are heard, you are seen, and I do this show for you and really in a lot of ways with you. So thank you so much for being here. All right, I'll talk with you next time.